0: Alright, hi and welcome to our final message in this series, or at least it's almost like part one of our series through 1 Kings, because we're mostly just focusing on the reign of Solomon. Now, I have loved preaching through First and Second Samuel in the past. However, Solomon's reign has been a challenge for me at times. The main reason is that the books of Samuel are mostly prophetic. That means it was written specifically by someone who wasn't trying to just recount history. They'll say, you can read about all the other things in Solomon's reign or this person's reign in this book that we don't really have anymore. They're not just trying to recount history, but they wanna give us a close visual of a broken human and a redeeming God. So First and Second Samuel is most likely written by Samuel and Nathan, a combination of their prophetic writings. However, we don't seem to have as many prophetic voices during the reign of Solomon. Those come after, like Elijah and Elisha, and some that we'll actually see tonight. However, those earlier and later prophets have messages for us woven into this greater narrative that connect to Solomon. So I actually want us to go back in time a little bit. We're gonna kind of do a little flashback, a little prequel in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 20. This is in verses uh, 41, and it's actually gonna go all the way to chapter 21. Uh, This is uh, around the time when King David Uh, had just, the, the, the rebellion that his son Absalom started had just ended, Absalom had died, and David was sort of reconciling or trying to reconcile the kingdom with his men. And there's sort of this fight that happens that is kind of going to show the divided nature of the kingdoms of Israel and Judah, which were more or less united at the time. It says this, Soon all the men of Israel were coming to the king and saying to him, Why did our brothers... The men of Judah steal the king away and bring him to his household across the Jordan together with all his men. It says, all the men of Judah answered the men of Israel. Notice the, the difference there where it's talking almost like a, two different people groups. Men of Judah answered the men of Israel. We did this because the king is closely related to us. Why are you angry about it? Have we eaten any of the king's provision? Have we taken anything for ourselves? Then the men of Israel answered the men of Judah. We have 10 shares in the king. They're talking about how there's 10 tribes of them. We have 10 shares in the king, so we have a greater claim on David than you have. Why then do you treat us with contempt? We're going to put a pin in that because it'll come back, I promise, at the end of this. Later on, they say, weren't we the first to speak to bringing him back as king? But the men of Judah pressed their claims even more forcefully than the men of Israel. Now, a troublemaker named Sheba, son of Bichri, a Benjamite, happened to be there. He sounded the trumpet and shouted, We have no share in David, no part in Jesse's son. Every man to his tent, Israel. So all the men of Israel deserted David to follow Sheba son of Bichri. But the men of Judah stayed by their king all the way from the Jordan to Jerusalem. And Sheba would, he, you know, this is um, kind of summarizing afterwards. He would go on to lead this whole rebellion and Joab would, you know, have to more or less take care of it. But the thing I want us to know there or to see there is something hiding in plain sight is that there's always been this slight fracturing of a divided kingdom between Israel, the 10 tribes of Israel, and the tribe of Judah. And there are even inklings of this during the war between the house of David and the house of Saul, even earlier. The northern tribes of Israel, about 10 of them, followed Saul, and David had only the tribe of Judah, though that was one of the largest. And even during David and Solomon's so-called united monarchy, there is still trouble that they thought they stamped out, but would later play out when Solomon died. Now, what this shows us is that often things blow up. Uh, out of the blue but those things might seem like they're blowing up out of the blue when in reality they have been brewing for a long time. You know recently my wife Gracie and I watched uh, this movie The Big Short about the 2008 financial crisis and it follows three groups of people who all notice around the same time that the housing market at the time was essentially this house of cards that was about to collapse. And so they're trying to, you know, search for the cause of how could this have happened? How could it have been, you know, that they allow all these problematic things to happen that would lead to the house of cards collapsing. And as they're searching for that, it was all these little things along the way, like approving loans for people who couldn't afford it. Then labeling those as safe loans and then kind of bundling them together and all these kinds of securities and stuff. And there was this lack of oversight um, with the government, with these different ratings agencies. It was a problem that had been brewing for almost a decade. And though there were a few people who raised the alarm, no one wanted to listen to them until it all fell apart. Let's get it even more personal. Maybe you try to take your parents' criticism in stride, or you ignore something rude that your friends keep doing. Maybe you're trying to please everyone, but you're really just bottling it up, all of these little cuts. You bottle it up only to have it explode down the line. Or maybe you miss one assignment in school, or you miss one deadline at work, and then it's another, and then another, until it spirals out of control and you're totally failing. And in church, there are often things people bottle up. Maybe they don't like the music or the sermon. There's relationship drama, or your friends aren't as involved anymore. And instead of tackling the problem or conflict head on, we gossip about it. We find people we can bring to our side and create a divide between us. And these kinds of things aren't sudden freak accidents that we never could have predicted because division happens under the surface over time, but the consequences are felt all at once. That's going to be a big point that we are going to see. Division happens under the surface. It happens gradually over time, but the consequences from division, we often feel all at once when it kind of blows up in our face the kingdom of Israel and Judah, they looked united on the surface during the reigns of David and Solomon. But there were things brewing under the surface, especially during the reign of Solomon. And the consequences are felt uh, most severely or kind of blows up in everyone's face in 1 Kings 12. So let's look at some of the things that the author is showing us are happening uh, or happened under the surface. In 1 Kings 3.1, it says, uh, and we read this a while back, Solomon made an alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and married his daughter. Later on it says, As Solomon grew old, his many wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. He followed Ashtoreth, the, the goddess of the Sidonians, Moloch, the detestable god of the uh, Ammonites, and Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. He did not follow the Lord completely as David his father had done. On the east hill Jerusalem, it goes on to mention all these things, these high places, these foreign gods. Um, this is in 1 Kings chapter 11. Uh, then in 1 Kings 5, uh, Solomon constricted, uh, conscripted labors from all Israel, thirty thousand men. Conscripted means they were uh, they were told to work uh, against their will, more or less. It's like if you're conscripted or drafted into the army; it doesn't matter whether you want to or not. He's basically created temporary slave labor. In 1 Kings ten, it says that Solomon accumulated chariots and horses. Um, he had fourteen hundred chariots and twelve thousand horses. These are all just little cuts, by the way, that the Bible gives us to remind us that Solomon's kingdom was not the end all be all. We heard a few weeks ago that all of this was in direct opposition to everything Moses commanded concerning kings. So why were the kings given commands like not to trust in chariots or allow slavery? Like, well, who cares about chariots or horses? Why is that a big deal? It's because the whole Exodus uh, Exodus narrative is about how easy it is and how easy it was for the Israelites to get out of Egypt, you know, God, you know, gave 10 plagues. It probably took no more than a few weeks or something like that. Getting them out of Egypt did not take a long time, but getting the Egypt out of the Israelites took a much longer time. and was a much more difficult process. And the fear was that if the Israelites had a king just like everyone else, then the king would be just like everyone else, like Pharaoh who enslaved them. Now Israel has come full circle to the very thing they swore to destroy with Solomon essentially becoming Pharaoh. It says this, The the people of Israel uh, and Judah were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They ate, that's my emphasis, they ate, they drank, and they were happy. And Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates River to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. These countries brought tribute and were Solomon's subjects All his life. Compare that with God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 3. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And this is the important part. All the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. It was good at the time for the people of Israel and Judah, just like it was for the Egyptians, but not for the nations they were supposed to be God's blessing to. And now Solomon has basically become Pharaoh, and the cracks are beginning to show with the divided kingdom. Now, towards the end of his reign, in 1 Kings 11, there are some minor rebellions and adversaries who rise up. And the biggest one is a man named Jeroboam. So it says this in 1 Kings 11. Now, Jeroboam was a man of standing. And when Solomon saw how well the young man did his work, he put him in charge of the whole labor force of the tribes of Joseph. About that time, Jeroboam was going out of Jerusalem. And Ahijah, the prophet, right? This is where the prophetic's coming in. The prophet Ahijah met him along the way, Wearing a new cloak. The two of them were alone out in the country, and Ahijah took hold of the new cloak he was wearing and tore it into twelve pieces. Then he said to Jeroboam, Take ten pieces for yourself, for this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. See, I am going to tear the kingdom out of Solomon's hand and give you ten tribes. But for the sake of my servant David and the city of Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, he will have one tribe. I will do this because they have forsaken me. And worshipped Ashtoreth, the god of the Sidonians, Chemosh, the god of the Moabites, and Moloch, uh, the god of the Ammonites, and have not walked in obedience to me, nor done what is right in my eyes, nor kept my decrees and laws as David, uh, as David's, uh, uh, Solomon's father did. But I will not take the whole kingdom out of Solomon's hand. I have made him ruler all the days of his life for the sake of David my servant, whom I chose and who obeyed my commands and decrees. I will take the kingdom from his son's hands and give you, this is to Jeroboam, give you 10 tribes. I will give one tribe to his son, this is Solomon, so that David, my servant, may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I chose to put uh, my name. However, as for you, Jeroboam, I will take you and make you rule over all that your heart desires and you'll be king over Israel. By the way, this is a clear reference. There are so many callbacks here, um, but just... One I wanted to mention is a clear reference to First Samuel 15, where as Samuel turned to leave, Saul, the former king, caught hold of the hem of his robe and it tore. Samuel said to him, the, kingdom, or the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you. By the way, that phrase, better than you, sounds harsh, but it's probably best translated as gooder. It's that word tov. Though I guess he's saying Saul is not a good man, so maybe it is fairly harsh. But God tore the kingdom away from Saul, and now it's being torn into pieces and given to two different men, Jeroboam and Rehoboam. These are likely their regal names, by the way. Rehoboam, who is Solomon's son, means a large amount of people since he ruled over the largest tribe of Judah. And Jeroboam means the people content since he rebelled against Rehoboam and Judah. And Rehoboam, uh, once again, Solomon's son, and he seems like the likely successor and probably would have been if he was wiser. Now it says that everyone in Israel and Judah, this is almost immediately after, come out for Rehoboam's coronation. And this is what happens. And once again, we're reading through a lot of scripture here. Um, Rehoboam went out to Shechem, for all Israel had gone there to make him king. When Jeroboam, uh, son of Nebat, heard this, he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. He returned from Egypt. So they sent for Jeroboam, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, Your father put a heavy yoke on us. Now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days, and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, If today you will be a servant to these people. Notice, if you will be a servant. Not they, your slaves, like Pharaoh. Uh, if you will be their servant um, uh, to these people and serve them and give them a fable answer, they will be your servants. But Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? The young man who had grown up with him replied, these people have said to you, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, my little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid on you a heavy yoke. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Three days later, Jeroboam and all the people returned to Rehoboam, as the king had said, come back to me in three days. The king answered the people harshly, rejecting the advice given him by the elders. He followed the advice of the young men and said, my father made your yoke heavy. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. So the king did not listen to the people for this turn of events was from the Lord. To fulfill the word, the Lord had spoken to Jeroboam, son of Nebat, uh, through Ahijah, the Shilonite. When all of Israel saw that the king refused to listen to them, they answered the king, what share do we have in David? Remember, we put a pin in that, right? Previously, the people of Israel were fighting. The other 10 tribes said, we have more share in David. And now they're saying, what share do we have in David? What part in Jesse's sons? To your tents, Israel. Look after your own house, David. Maybe that phrase sounds familiar. What share do we have in David? Now David and Solomon's successor has become so delusional that he thinks the people don't want lower taxes and don't want to be set free from essentially being slave. Uh, and, and Solomon wrote, by the way, at least a half dozen Proverbs before he died, pleading with Rehoboam to follow wise counsel. Good examples in Proverbs eleven fourteen: For a lack of guidance, a nation falls, but victory is won through many advisors. Rehoboam goes not to his father's wise advisors who helped him lead one of the most prosperous kingdoms. Instead, he goes basically to his frat bros who egg him on saying, my little finger is bigger than my father's waist. That's actually a softening of the literal Hebrew here, which is for loins, right? First Kings is actually full of these kinds of harsh words where Rehoboam is literally making a dick joke about his dad saying, my little finger is thicker than, I'll let you finish that in your mind. So the Northern tribes of Israel, they leave Rehoboam to follow Jeroboam. And there's almost a war between them, by the way. We won't read the full text, but thankfully Rehoboam listens to another prophet, this is where the prophetic is coming into play here, who tells him not to go to war against their own brothers. Then the final nail comes in the coffin with an eerily similar story from the Exodus narrative. Once again, this, this text is just is full, it's, it's dripping with, with other references throughout the Old Testament. Solomon had become just like Pharaoh. And after he dies, the people of the northern kingdom set up a golden half, becoming like the Egyptians who had enslaved them. It comes full circle. It says, uh, this is 1 Kings 12, 26, by the way. Jeroboam thought to himself, the kingdom will now likely revert to the house of David. If these people go up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, they will again give their allegiance to their Lord, Rehoboam, king of Judah. They will kill me and return to King Rehoboam. After seeking advice, the king made two golden calves. He said to the people, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. One he set up in Bethel and the other in Dan. And this thing became a sin. The people came to worship the one at Bethel and went as far as Dan to worship the other. This chapter acts like a bookend. the Exodus narrative. The people of Israel have been given the word of God, inscribed on two stone tablets, the law of Moses, and even allowed to have a king, even though God was supposed to be their king. There were times they followed God wholeheartedly. We talked about that with the cycle of the judges, but now at least half of them have become just like the Egyptians over 400 years later. And Rehoboam is clearly not much better. Of all the terrible things each of the kings we looked at did, Saul, David, Solomon, now Rehoboam, the one thing that sets David apart is that he did not tolerate worshiping other gods. Don't get me wrong. He committed major sins and was incredibly flawed, but he almost always, at least that I could find, turned his heart back to God and God alone in repentance. And we went through a huge chunk of the Bible tonight, right? We've read, this might be the most scripture I've ever read in a sermon. And the main things we've seen Are this, right? If you've fallen asleep or you know haven't been paying attention, here's kind of what it distills down into. Division happens under the surface, right? All these things were happening under the surface, gradually over time, but the consequences are felt now. It all blows up, especially in 1 Kings 12. The second thing is that without God's help, we will become the very thing that we hate the most. We saw this with the Israelites and Solomon becoming just like the Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And the third thing is that we need godly wisdom and counsel in our lives, right? This is what Rehoboam should have done. And we need that rather than what sounds good to us or what gets people to like us. Now, in Better Man, we've talked about how a symptom of a fatherhood wound, right? This is something we've been doing on Monday morning. Uh, A father wound is when you say, I will never do blank like my dad. Maybe you'll never drink because your dad drank. Or was an alcoholic. Or maybe you know, you're, you're saying, I'm not going to be so strict like my dad. Uh, and a good way to know if you need to honor your dad is to recognize when you rightly say, actually, I, I want to do blank because that's how my dad taught me. That's what my dad did. Right? And if that's you, then think and honor those who give you good, godly training. And when we do have those wounds, whether it's from a dad or an ex-best friend or a hated coworker or a boss, we will likely copy them. Right? You'll look in the mirror someday and realize that your biggest flaws and your biggest sins are exactly what you said I didn't want to do. I don't want to do blank like that person does. I remember my days as a church intern were rough. I had a really cynical view of church interns that, that they're often just cheap, exploited labor rather than getting practical hands-on experience. It made my experience seem all that much worse. And I'd like to think that I did a good intentional job, let's say with Taylor Bramwell, who was our summer intern, But every step along the way, I tried to give them practical tools in ministry that I did not get, right? I wanted to do blank. I wanted to give them these practical tools because my other bosses never did that for me. Yet in the past, I found myself treating them like my lackey or just plain neglecting them or not having time for them. I still struggle with appreciating volunteers well, and I I confess. You know, one thing I'm not doing well now is I need to pour into our leadership team better and appreciate the people who put their heart and soul into this. A good example is Jesus Torres, who has been leading our worship so well. See, I've become like the Egyptians, those pastors. I've become like them who exploited me as an intern and kicked me to the curb uh, so they could, you know, say, oh, look how we're raising up the next generation you know, they, they, like people just want interns to say, oh, look how we're training them up and raising up the next generation. And then we kick them to the curb after a year, try to get another one. When really, I was no better off. Now, at the very least, I have some appreciation that they were probably doing their best, just like I am, but they get caught up with the busyness. I get caught in a lack of intentionality that results in being a lackluster boss or a lackluster pastor. And the solution is actually very simple, but it is a difficult process like getting the Egypt out of the Israelites. There's no magic bullet. No, wow, other pastors hate him. This pastor has one simple trick to greatness. Here are three things to expect when getting the Egypt out of us and to become the godly men and women that we want to become and that God is is trying to create us into. Here's the thing. Number one, it takes time. One of the saddest things is that sometimes what you need most to accomplish a goal or grow in something is time. 10,000 hours of playing guitar might not make you the best guitar player if you're not musical, but even the best musicians need to put in the time to practice scales, to put the time in to develop their talent. Your prayer life probably won't be transformed overnight, but it's like a drip, uh, a, a slow drip of water eroding a stone, or it's like watching a pot boil. There's an old saying, a watched pot never boils. What we need to do is trust the process, trust the time. And I remember I struggled with resentment and I still do. I just trusted the process to pray for people I didn't like and I trusted the process asking God to help me forgive them. There was a pastor who burned me a long time ago and I just said, okay, God, I need to trust you with this. So I just prayed for good things for him despite my resentment. And I remember I saw an old friend from that church who said that that pastor was getting criticized for something that I actually thought he was doing right. And my immediate reaction was no longer resentment but actually, my, my sort of gut reaction was support for him. And I thought, when did I stop hating this guy? Well, it happened over time, like water eroding the rock in my heart, trusting the process. The second thing, you know, so the first one, right, is it takes time, it takes trusting the process. The second thing is we need to identify the worldliness in us. We need to identify how the world is shaping us and to resist it with the help of the Spirit. Part of that process is developing self-awareness, right? This isn't self-consciousness to feel bad about yourself. It's when you watch TV or a movie, you ask, and you be intentional to say, how is this shaping me? What are the ways of the world that this is forming in me? A while back, I had to really cut back on certain sites like Facebook, Reddit, Twitter. I started to realize that it's just a bunch of keyboard warriors. It's people, a lot of times young people, who have nothing better to do than argue with people online all day. It was forming me to doom scroll rather than be content in God, to seek hope in politics rather than trust in God's sovereignty. Right. So that's that's me identifying that that that's it's not shaping something godly in me. It's shaping something worldly in me. And I had to resist it or just cut it out with the help of the spirit. That's number two. The third and final thing is this. It's going to take transformation through God's word. Right? So that we've, we're identifying the problem that the world you know, is, is doing or that the world is forming in us. And we're, we're resisting it with the help of the Spirit. But ultimately, we need to go to the next step, which is transformation through God's Word. Because God's Word is living and active. It always has been. It's our true north. And the ways of the world are forming rocks in our heart. But the Word of God is like water that can slowly, with time or with enough pressure, blast through our hard hearts. Right, those three things, nothing I've mentioned is super revolutionary. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel here. But to tell us that we need to persist in these things. That, that it's a very simple, it's a relatively simple process, what I've just described. But it's difficult. It takes time. But ultimately, it's worth it in the end.